Uh, my name's Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and delighted to be here, especially because we start on a brand new sermon series for 2020. We're in week two, and we are looking at my favorite book in the Bible, which is, of course, Song of Solomon. For those of you who did not know who that was, that was my wife who decided to shout that out, and that was not rehearsed. Uh, anyways, it's the, uh, <laughs> it's the Gospel of Luke. That's right, the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> so last week, I had the pleasure to preach at Tap Nights at Tap Monday Park, and we began with a little quiz in order to get a really nice, quick, easy introduction to the Gospel of Luke. We had so much fun doing it uh, that I decided to bring it back this week, all right? And so uh, hopefully it will be entertaining, but also it will be a reminder for those of you who were here last week uh, uh, just to remember some of the things that Julian said in her most excellent sermon. So question number one, here it is. This is a nail biter. Question number one, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Was it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Do not overthink this one. It is Luke, right, C. Altogether, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are what we call the Gospels. Gospel comes from the old English term for the good news. And they all begin in the New Testament, in the first four books, and they all tell us the good news and story of Jesus. And Luke, Luke is actually the longest of the Gospels. In fact, not only the longest of the Gospels, but the longest New Testament book. Luke has a word count of 19,482 compared to the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, coming in at second with 18,450 Greek words. So, since Luke wrote the longest two books in the New Testament, it is Luke, then, who is actually responsible for writing the majority of the New Testament. Like, I never knew that. I always thought it was Paul because he wrote 13 letters, right? But it is actually Luke that's actually responsible for almost a third of the New Testament. So, who knew? Question number two. Luke was A, one of the 12 disciples, B, a physician, C, a Jew, or D, all of the above. The answer is? It's a trick question. It's B. B. So Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. He came later on as a part of the early church and was one of the travel companions for the apostle Paul. He was, though, a physician. In the book of Colossians, he is referred to as being a doctor, and you can see uh, hints of his profession in all the, milita- uh, the medical jargon he uses in his writings. And lastly, it's traditionally accepted that Luke was a Greek Gentile uh, from Antioch in ancient Syria. So, Luke is then the only non-Jewish writer in the entire New Testament. But also interestingly, Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus, and Theophilus was a high-standing uh, Gentile from Rome. And so this then made uh, this quite interesting that Luke was the only Gentile writing to another Gentile. So being non-Jewish myself, that's another reason why I love Luke, because I'm actually reading it without all the Jewish kind of understanding, and it's almost like Luke is writing this letter or this book to me. Question number three, which of the following parables are not found in Luke? A, the parable of the prodigal son, B, the parable of the good Samaritan, C, the parable of the shrewd manager, or D, the parable of the sheep and the goats? And the answer is? Oh. The answer is D, the parable of the sheep and goats, which is only found in Matthew 25 along with the ten virgins and the talents. The other three 
are the only ones found, along with a number of other ones, found in the Gospel of Luke. But look at the first two. The parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the good Samaritan only show up in Luke. So can you imagine if Luke never wrote his gospel? Can you imagine if Luke never wrote down these two parables? We would never have these two most famous and amazing parables ever in history. So we have Luke to thank for that. So each of these books, these gospels have nuances. They write to a different audience. They have different stories. But Luke is known for being a storyteller. He tells parable after parable after parable, and he writes a number of stories that aren't found in the other gospels. Just another reason why I love Luke. Okay, last question. Who doesn't show up in the first two chapters of Luke? A, Zechariah and Elizabeth. B, shepherds and the angels. C, the wise men or the magi. And D, Simeon and Anna. And the answer is? Yeah, that's right. C. Yes, good. Hey, 20. Oh, no, you got the first one right. So 50%, that's not that bad. Uh, So the wise men, again, only show up in Matthew. But aside from the story of Magi, Luke provides the fullest and the best description of Jesus' birth. That is, Luke, we actually get the first four kind of uh, first uh, carols in history. That we have Mary's Magnificat, Zachariah's Benedictus, the Angel's Glory and Excelsis, and Simeon's Song, all only found in Luke. It is through these songs and through these stories that we actually learn about the birth of Jesus. In Bethlehem, in a stable, to a carpenter named Joseph, to a virgin named Mary, in front of shepherds who were called by angels. Are you beginning to see why Luke is my favorite? It is Luke that provides us with the fullest description of his birth. It is Luke that is jam-packed with parable after parable, including my favorite, the parable of the prodigal son, which is the gospel within the gospel. And it is Luke that is written with the evangelistic bent to tell the story of Jesus to Gentile readers with a hope that they would one day come to faith in Jesus. So is Luke not your favorite now? For all you John lovers, have I changed your mind? Oh, come on. <laughs> But regardless, who's excited about this new series? Yeah, that's right. So like I mentioned, Luke provides the fullest description of Jesus' birth. Chapter 1 of Luke tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth as well as the Annunciation, which is the fancy term for when the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary with the good news. Chapter 2 of Luke tells us about the shepherds and the angels. It talks about Jesus' dedication at the temple and about the story we learned last week That if you remember, Jesus was lost supposedly for three days, but then found at the temple. And that's it. After that story, when Jesus is 12, we don't hear of him again. It's called the hidden years. And Jesus all again suddenly shows up at the ripe old age of 30. That it is at the age of 30 when Jesus suddenly shows up at the Jordan River to get baptized by John. It is at 30 when he starts preaching his message of the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at 30, too, when he decides to call disciples to himself. But instead of one or two or three disciples, he calls 12. Who were they? On what criteria did he pick them? What made them so special? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter 5, verse 1, and it reads like this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. All right, so the scene begins with Jesus on the shore of Galilee, teaching before a large crowd and probably feeling a bit claustrophobic as the crowds kept coming closer and closer towards him, he has this brilliant idea. 
Along the lakeshore in the Galilee, especially close to Capernaum, there is a sequence of steep inlets, and each of these inlets kind of formed like a natural amphitheater. And so you could actually get into the boat, push out, still speak normally, but then all of these people would still be able to hear you clearly. Well, nearby were a bunch of fishermen that just came in from a night of fishing, and so Jesus decided to ask, jump into the fish, uh, jump into the boat, sorry. That's Job, that's a totally different story. Uh, And then... (laughs) And then begin teaching, and everyone still was able to hear him. Well, what happens next? Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Simon's words here now portray a bit of skepticism, don't they? In the first place, Simon's words indicate that he and his parents... Uh, He and his partners, oh my goodness, were dog-tired. They had worked all night. They had just finished washing their nets. And if the nets are not washed and dried properly, they begin to break and they begin to rot. It's a painstaking thing to do, and they did not want to do that again. Second, Simon indicates that their fishing has been so far futile. That night was the best time to fish uh, in deep water. And if they had not caught anything at night, how on earth would they catch anything during the daytime? I mean, it's the worst possible time to fish. But third, there's a hint of irritation here, isn't there? I mean, like, Jesus had some interesting teaching, sure, but this is my expertise. Does Jesus, this rabbi, this carpenter, really think he knew more about fishing than me? Jesus' order seems a bit naive. Nevertheless, it must have been something Jesus said or the way he said it that moved Simon. For Simon relents, paddles back out to sea, and puts down the nets. And what happens that happens is what is absolutely incredible. Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Now, there are always these telltales that uh, fishermen tell, right? Like about how they went fishing and for four hours fought against this fish and then they caught this like 10-foot swordfish, right? You've heard those stories? Well, this story man, blows them all out of the water. The nets were so absolutely full that they began to break. They even had to signal their partners in order for help. But the catch was so big that both of the boats began to sink. I mean, this was a catch of a lifetime. This catch would have made them both famous and rich. But falling down at the feet of Jesus, Simon Peter, note the name of change. Simon is now called Simon Peter. Simon Peter now sees Jesus in a completely different light. In verse 5, Simon called Jesus master, but now Peter calls Jesus Lord. Both names and titles change at the exact same time. And the change of terms is a signal of the quantum leap in Simon Peter's understanding of Jesus. Having experienced firsthand this amazing miracle, Simon Peter now begins to see Jesus for who he truly is. Like in Peter's experience to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, which we learned last term, of coming face to face with the holiness of God, when these six-winged seraphim showed up in the temple and began to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that having been made aware of the awesomeness of the God's holiness, Isaiah is brutally 
and suddenly aware of himself that seeing his own pollution, Isaiah exclaims, woe to me, I am ruined and I am doomed to die. And that's what happens here. Peter suddenly drops to his knees that in the presence of holiness, he sees his sinfulness. Woe to me. But what does Jesus say? Verse 10 continues. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Just like that, Jesus moves past Simon's sin and towards Peter's future. Drop your nets and follow me. So they pull up to shore, drop everything, and from that day on, Peter, his brother Andrew, as well as James and John, their partners, left their job as fishermen and followed Jesus. No longer will they catch fish, but instead they will catch people. And by the way, the word translated as fish here is probably better translated as to catch alive or to catch for life. Thus they will seek to bring people life, people who are lost and swimming aimlessly through life, and catch them into the loving, merciful net of God's love. Great story, right? Jesus choosing his first four disciples. But what did these men do in order to qualify as being one of his disciples? What display of creativity, brilliance, and wisdom did they display? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That in total, Jesus would handpick 12 men to his side of the 12. All of them, except for Judas Iscariot, came from the the Hick outpost far, far away in Galilee, away from uh, Jerusalem. Four of them, the four we met today, were nothing more than lowly fishermen. One of his disciples was called Simon the Zealot, or what I would uh, interpret as Simon the Terrorist, a rebel who belonged uh, to a group totally violently opposed to Rome. The absolute antithesis of him was the disciple Matthew, who actually worked for Rome and who was a tax collector. None of them were the ruling elite. None of them were wealthy. None of them were scholars. These 12 guys were certainly not the best of the best of the best. But maybe that's the point. Let me explain what I mean by that. Back in Jesus' day, education was the biggest deal around. And at the top of the education system were the rabbis, which were kind of like the ruling religious elite. And every single Jewish boy, when they grew up, wanted to become a rabbi because rabbi was the definitive thing to do. It was like the most famous, the most renowned, most respected people of the day. And there was even an ongoing debate as to what age a rabbi could take a child as one of his students. One rabbi made this statement, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but from six upwards, receive him and stuff him with Torah like an ox. So the Jewish education system that Jesus would have grown up in and learned from was made up of three sections. Next slide. It's Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. Now, the first was something called Bet Sefer, and this was for boys between the ages of 5 and 10 and taught in the synagogue by the local rabbi. It required that they memorize the Torah. That's right, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. They had to have memorized all of it. I mean, it's a big deal now if our kids could actually memorize them like the times table, right? <laughs> so anyways, if you graduated from that, the second phase was something called Bet Talmud. 
And this occurred kind of from the age of 10 to 14. And during this time, the student would continue to memorize the Psalms, the prophets, and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, which is equivalent to our Old Testament. All of it memorized. Now you understand how well they knew their Bible. This stage was reserved then only for like maybe 10% that could actually achieve that of the student population. But it was more than just rote memorization. They had to understand what they were reading. And I like how Rob Bell put it, whose writings were actually uber helpful for me this morning for this sermon. He writes this. The student would also during this time begin to learn the art of questions and answers. In our Western civilization today, we are into information transfer. But in those days, answering a question wasn't quite as direct. A rabbi might ask a student, what is two plus two? Today, we would spread out the answer of four. But back then, when a rabbi would ask what two plus two was, a student might answer with, well, what is the square root of 16? This not only told the rabbi that the student heard and understood the question, but was able to process it and respond with a question of his own. So you see, when we find Jesus in the temple at the age of 12, Luke 2, which we talked about last week, we find him doing just what a boy of his age would be doing, questions and answers with the elders. Really cool, right? I mean, this was like the top notch of students. So if you graduated from the second phase of Bet Talmud, there was something called Bet Midrash. And this was only for the best and the brightest. This was Harvard and Stanford of first century rabbinical studies. At age 14, a student would approach a rabbi and request to follow him as a disciple. And now we are talking about maybe 1% of the student population. And according to some things I've read, there might have been maybe 100 disciples that followed rabbis in the entire first century at a time. Now, each rabbi would have their own midrash or their own interpretation of scriptures. For instance, what did it mean to honor the Sabbath? Well, one rabbi would say, well, you could actually walk all the way to the synagogue. That's all you could do on Sabbath. And another rabbi, in order to try to be smarter, would say, no, you could walk double the distance of the Sabbath to the synagogue, sorry, because you had to be able to walk home. So each rabbi had its own midrash, its own interpretation, its own set of rules. And each rabbi's rules were called his yoke. So if you studied under a specific rabbi, you were basically saying that you were willing to take his yoke upon you. You were willing to follow, to mimic, and try to be just like your rabbi. So then, approaching a rabbi to become one, his, one of his disciples, and again, remember, a rabbi would only take two or three disciples at one time, the rabbi would then quiz you. He would examine you about everything, about scripture, about history, about his own midrash. He would see how well you do questions and answers. Basically, the rabbi is trying to discern, is this kid sitting in front of me? Is he good enough? Does this kid cut it? Does this kid know what I know? Can this kid do what I do? Can this kid continue what I am doing? And if the rabbi was determined that you were good enough, then he would say, come, take my yoke upon you. You and follow me. And right there and then, the boy would leave everything. Home, mother, father, synagogue, community, and devote his entire life following his rabbi. Now, there is the possibility that the rabbi might, while quizzing you, realize you are not Harvard material. You weren't the best of the best, so he would say something like this. Obviously, you love the Torah, you love God, but you don't have what it takes to be just like me. So go. Learn the family business. Get married. Make babies and pray. 
pray for sons and pray that the sons might be better than you and that the son might actually become like me, a rabbi. Which brings us to our story. Jesus is a rabbi. He's 30 years old, the age when rabbis begin to take on disciples. And he shows up on the shores of Galilee. He runs into Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. What were they? Oh, they were just working for their parents, and they were fishermen. Why? Because they didn't make the cut. Because they weren't good enough. A rabbi had probably told them they weren't the best of the best and had said, too bad, so sad, go fish. Well, Jesus says to these four that had been rejected and says to them, you, take my yoke and follow me. I mean, have you ever thought about it? I mean, Jesus just shows up on the shores, runs into these guys and says, follow me, and they drop everything. I mean, right there and then, they leave the biggest catch of their lives, they leave their boats, they leave their families, they leave everything and decide to follow this guy just because he shows up to the shore. But now you understand why. Jesus was a rabbi, and he's calling disciples. And even though others may not think that they were good enough, Jesus thinks they're good enough. That's the premise of the whole system. A rabbi will not accept someone they don't think can be like them. Jesus is giving them a chance to fulfill their dream. So, of course, they're going to drop everything and follow him. But in Jesus choosing them, these rejected Folks, these lowly fishermen, this says something about Jesus, doesn't it? That Jesus' call to follow him is for anyone and everyone. It's not just for the select and the few, it's for everyone. Like I said, most rabbis can only take two or three disciples at a time, but Jesus carried an astonishing 12. Like, why 12? Well, there are a lot of reasons, and I can't get into it, 12 tribes, 12 this and 12 that, but 12 is a significant number in the Bible because the number 12 often symbolizes and represents all of God's people, all of us. So yes, God uses the best of the best, but he uses ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill folks. And you know, for some reason, a lot of people think that the only people God calls are the best, the top of the class. But look at these 12 guys Jesus picks, and look at what they do that these 12 disciples turned the world upside down and altered human history. Simon becomes Peter, which is Petros, which means rock, for he is the rock on which Jesus builds his church. And from such a ragtag band of people, Jesus founded a church that has not stopped growing for the last 2,000 years. And just like how Jesus called his original disciples, Jesus is still calling disciples to himself today. He is calling you and he is calling me. Did you hear that? Jesus is calling you. Come, take on my yoke, and you will discover, as it says in Scripture, when you take on my yoke, you will realize that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and follow me. He calls you because he actually believes in you. He believes that you can be his disciple. He believes that you can be like him. Remember, that's the whole premise of the system. A rabbi won't accept someone who they don't think can be like him. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a huge paradigm shift in my life. 
I mean, all my life, it's always about believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus. And yes, of course, I believe in Jesus. But I've never actually thought that Jesus, Jesus might actually also believe in me. I mean, having faith in Jesus is important, but what about Jesus' faith in me? That he must have faith in me. He must have faith in you. He must have faith in all of us, or he wouldn't leave the work of all of this to us. The work of the church, the work of the kingdom, to go to make disciples, to preach the good news, to fish for people. He wouldn't have left all of this work to us if he didn't believe that we could do it. You know, sometimes I find myself struggling to be a disciple of Jesus, especially with his role as being a pastor. And there are questions of self-doubt. Am I good enough? Do I know the Bible enough? Do I cut it? Am I faithful enough? And maybe some of you find yourself in the same position wondering, do I have what it takes to become a disciple of Jesus? But friends, he has chosen you. And he wouldn't have chosen you unless he thought that you had what it takes to be his disciple. So in case you're worried, in case you're afraid, listen again to Peter's words, or Jesus' words to Peter. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know you, and to be known is to be loved. I, Jesus, know you, and I believe you. I believe you have what it takes to be my disciple, so do not be afraid. I will lead the way. I will send my spirit, but from now on, you will go, and you will fish and give people life. So friends, what will your answer be? Because it's not a question of ability. It's a question of availability. That Jesus shows up today, not on the shores, but in front of this church, and he says to you, will you follow me? Will you drop everything? Take up your cross and follow your rabbi, Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you have chosen us. You have chosen us to be your faithful disciple. And you love us, and you know us, and you so desperately want for change in this world, for the kingdom of heaven to come. And we have been called to usher in the kingdom as your disciples. So may we receive this call. May we say, yes, Jesus, I believe that you believe in me, in this church, and that we will go, we will make disciples that make disciples, we will fish and give people life, and that our answer today would be yes. Yes, Jesus, Yes. In Christ's name, amen.